morning, everybody. I am here today with Ruth. Ruth is somebody who um, her family joined a plain church, I believe Amish Mennonite, when she was around two years old. That's very interesting to me because she doesn't remember um, the outside life, but still she would have that stigma of having not been born into it. So anyways, hi, Ruth. How are you? I am doing well, Mary. Um, I'm excited to be here this morning. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Of course. So when you start talking about Amish Mennonite churches, do you want to explain to people what that actually means? <laughs> well, I could go into the whole, you know, Menno Simons and you know, Jacob, what's his face? Jacob, Jacob Ammon. Yeah. Um, but I think most of us here are familiar enough with that. Uh, so our church was, I just describe it as a step up from the Amish. So we spoke English in church and had cars and electricity. Only black or white cars. Don't get me wrong. No fancy colors yet. Um, what? Why couldn't yeah. you have pretty cars? Well, Mary, it would be too English and worldly. You already know. Um, I'm sure that black car saved your soul. Okay. Oh, it did. I'm it sorry. Did. I have eternal good, you know, Girl Scout marks for that one. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of difference as far as the beliefs and how conservative it was. Everyone still spoke Pennsylvania Dutch at school, and you know, we had our own little three room school. Wait, you had multiple rooms in your school? We did, we did. Our church was big enough, we had three whole rooms and three whole teachers. See, our difference is right there, as like you know, old order Amish, um, ranging all the way from Ape Troyer Amish to um. Punksy, I would say, was the was the most um, liberal Amish community I ever lived in. Um, but all of them, like, if they didn't have um, enough space for the children, they would just build another school. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have like three rooms in the school. They would just build another school. So that's interesting. That's logical. Man, y'all were ho. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. We had uh, such, oh my goodness. Yeah. Anything else? Like, what about the way that y'all dress? Did y'all dress plain? Could you? We did. We dressed very plain. So no prints of any kind had to, excuse my child sneezing. So, um, so our so dresses good. had to be all plain colors. No yellow, pink, uh, red, of course not. Oh, you couldn't be like Jezebel? No, I was not Tart. allowed to do that. Oh, man. Right? So, so we had to, you know, the belt. We had to have aprons on our dresses until I was like eight or nine. And that was another part of church disagreement is one group wanted to not have to wear aprons which is, you know, you attach it to the belt. And when you put your belt on your dress, you have this 
perfectly matching in length apron that goes down the front of your skirt and the pleats have to match so it lays right <laughs> and you had oh, to have six pleats in your dress in the front and six in the back like just so many specific rules oh my goodness yeah I mean, I would definitely say that feels and sounds like it was still like similar theology at the same, like that level of control. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I know, like off camera, we had kind of talked a little bit about um, the coverings. What type of coverings did you wear? So. If you grew up Amish or, you know, Amish Mennonite, you know how to tell what <laughs> everybody is by their coverings, right? I catch right. myself doing right. it in the grocery store. Um, so our coverings, when we first joined, everyone wore, like, not quite, the cut was a little closer to Mennonite than the New Order Amish coverings, how they were like super angled and ours were a little more subtle, but we oh. had the opaque lining in them that you couldn't see through. Well, when I was eight or nine, this was another issue along with the apron on the dress that was up for decision. Um, and the more liberal ones wanted to take it out so you could see through the covering. Um, and the more conservative ones wanted to keep it. Of course, there was, you know, absolutely no discussion on the covering strings not being tied in the front perfectly for every church service. You couldn't have them loose. That's Jezebel behavior. So. <laughs> I mean, Bill, didn't they have a saying about, like, not having the covering strings tied, though? Scooby schlop. <laughs> there was something because you could have them loose for everyday wear and it was like encouraged for everyday wear you know you flip your strings <laughs> oh no we were not allowed to do that y'all were so ho hmm. we were yeah y'all were they were so ho means high but it really um actually means um liberal in our culture for the folks that don't know um but no, like we weren't allowed to not tie our covering strings. So that's a really interesting fun fact as well. Goodness gracious. Well, I guess you better consider that. So along with all of that, like, did you guys like go see doctors and stuff as, as Amish Mennonites? Or was that a little bit different again? Like, It was a little bit different, particularly because my parents had grown up seeing doctors and had a different relationship with doctors in the medical field than most me, than most other people in our church so toddlers on sunday mornings just are a lot she's so cute um so my parents got us my me and my siblings vaccinated for the most part there were some that they missed which was just not something that the rest of the church did um but that was kind of the extent of our medical interactions as far as as children 
we saw the dentist only if we had something wrong, like needing a tooth pulled or something, which was more than my, you know, peers got. Well, okay. So y'all actually saw a dentist, like an actual mm -hmm. doctor and an actual dentist because your parents were not, not like indoctrinated into the culture from their youth. Yeah. That's fascinating. It is. And it was something that we were definitely ostracized for. Ooh, yeah. Do you care to elaborate on that? It was something that the church that we were a part of just did not appreciate. Um, you know, most plain people are, you know, anti-vaccination. Um, you know, it just really have no access to information that would say anything different. Um, and the fact that my parents vaccinated their children was a huge thing. They just thought that this was terrible. And um, my dad actually did research and studied things to be able to tell them, like, he wasn't doing anything terrible. Well, that's also interesting because I was an unvaccinated Amish child and um, I had measles, mumps, chicken pox, whooping cough. Um, I believe there was a couple others, but I can't remember what it was. And some of those I was deliberately exposed to. And so it's like, um, yeah, that's interesting. Very, Very interesting. So, but Very. what about that would make it to where it causes... Um, you to lose social status in the community. Growing up as a what they called non-plain background person meant that every action you did was scrutinized whether it was plain enough or not. Mm -hmm. And it always just felt like we couldn't ever quite get to the place where we were 100% uh, fitting in. Um, the house is still up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from ministry, from peers, it was, you know, how dare you seek medical care? That makes you, you know, you're, that's not plain. Why, why would you do that? So I don't know if it was any more ostracizing than any of my other behaviors, but it now sits in with the mix of why you didn't fit in as a kid. Right. I I just think, like, when you talk about that whole thing, and I didn't really plan on talking about this, but I think it's really important for people to understand. Also, hey, um, Tyler, Spencer, yes, we are cult survivors. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, but when you start talking about that, where, you know, when, when you talk about the not being born in, like, you know, there's there's a whole level of, like, you will never obtain or achieve. And that's something I've tried to explain to people a little bit is that if you were not born into the community, there is no way that you can ever reach that, that status. Because it's like this ladder of, like, you have different levels of social status, almost like a caste system, right? Um. If you were not born into it, <clears throat> then you were not privileged enough to ever be able to reach the upper echelons of that ladder. Precisely. And it's 
just hearing that from you, that is so powerful and moving. And I'm sorry that people were like that to you. If you have anything else you would like to share with us about that, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, it, it's really terrible. And sometimes people need to understand that background as well. It's like, just, yeah. 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 As far as all of that, um, yeah, the biggest thing in the Amish and plain churches to get you up to that top tier is money, in my opinion. Um, and we were not fortunate in that department. Um, and that was just, you know, we were the poor, non-plain background family in the church. And don't get me wrong, there were people who were genuinely nice to us, but. But as a whole. Yeah. There was just always that element of not quite mm -hmm. enough. Hashtag yeah. not quite enough. Exactly. And it didn't help the not growing up speaking Pennsylvania Dutch was a huge thing because unless we as kids learned it, there was always the the distinct possibility that any of our peers could have a conversation in a different language directly in front of us and us not know what was going on. So that is an added element that um, also just isn't being talked about a whole lot is how isolating the Pennsylvania Dutch kind of thing is for people who aren't born into it. Right. And not only that, but we we do have a comment from our viewer, one of our viewers. Um, being born into cults and other high control religious groups is very different from being recruited. Um, that's very very true. Thank you for that. It is a whole different experience, especially when you have that that other language because the Pennsylvania Dutch element is absolutely like English is my second language. Mm -hmm. um, Pennsylvania Dutch is a language of oppression. It has, it's a, it's a spoken language only. It's, it's not like, like nothing they have written down is actually written in Pennsylvania Dutch necessarily. And so that's an important thing to also have people understand is when you join in, that's a very good point to make, is when you join in, part of that isolation that comes from it is partially because of the language, because people can be saying all kinds of terrible things about you right in front of your face, and you don't even know. Yep. I'm so sorry. That just, no. Yeah. It's not cool. It really um, isn't. No. So... When, how old were you when you got out of the church? My coming out of the church was definitely interesting. I met someone in the the plain church and we ended up getting engaged and kind of leaving together um, into a super conservative, still Christian, very like evangelical kind of Christian place. Um, and that was my progression out. But I officially left the Plain Church right around my 18th birthday on the 17 side. Gotcha. Yeah. And so you got out, you went to a different church, and um, I've often talked about this a little bit, is that when people um, 
go to leave. Like sometimes there's other churches that are almost like they're they're looking to Amish and, and Anabaptist churches to supply members for them. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to fall into that because, you know, you watch that happen as someone who grows up in it and you see these like outlying churches that still think plain and act plain, but they just do things different. They, you know, may dress more liberal and worldly, but they still act the same and they still hold the same judgments and the same kind of belief systems that keep people oppressed. And I didn't want to do that. And I thought that it would be very different going to a primarily English church. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. Um, but it was an incredible learning experience that now I can, I can see that it was the same thing. But at <laughs> 17 and 18, I did not. Well, no, you had just like gotten out of a community that you spent your entire life in and going from that to basically the same thing like you you may not necessarily see that yeah you really may not Precisely. it it just doesn't stick out to you because and it's not because you're dumb like i i just I've heard this from so many people. Well, I was so dumb. I didn't understand. I didn't. And I want to reassure all of you that it's not because you're dumb. It's because you have been in a sitting, like you have been in a culture. You have been in a group that has controlled every aspect of your being. And like for you, it was every aspect of your being for around, you know, 15 to 16 years. Yeah. So if you spend so much time being controlled by that theology, you may not necessarily recognize it when you see it and ha it has just a little bit of a different appearance to it. Yeah. And it's not because you're, you're naive. It's not, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with having been inside of that oppressive system for so long. Yeah, precisely. So thank you for sharing that. That's a very powerful thing to talk about, that that whole thing. But anyways, we're supposed to be talking about healthcare. How are we talking about healthcare? Where do you want to begin? <laughs> like, there's a lot of places you could begin. Um, should we start with like what it's like when you get out of the community and you need healthcare? Yeah, let's start I'll there. First. I'll go first. So in 2015, uh, somebody whom I highly respect and whom I had interactions with, a um, neuropsychologist actually, had recommended for me to have an evaluation for autism spectrum disorder. How many years did it take me to have that evaluation? <laughs> I was on it. Let me tell you, I was on it. I had that evaluation done in uh, June and July of 2021, so six years later. Any comments on that? Super prompt. <laughs> um, however, for X-Plane Neurodivergent folk, that's actually pretty good. So, 
it only took me six years, six years to actually consider that the neuropsychologist might have a point. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that I might maybe could actually benefit from actually having a diagnosis, which by the way, for those of you who don't know, I was diagnosed as having an autism spectrum disorder this year. And that's a whole other thing. And someday I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> um, and I also have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, um, which is part of what kind of spurred this conversation between, between us and Yes, that's a whole conversation for a different day, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good conversation and it needs to be had, I'm thinking, because, you know, there's, but not today. Today yeah. is more about, in general, like, how do we go about, like, seeking healthcare? Because, mm -hmm. so, for example, like, when you get out of a plain community, many people, one, they don't even know when to seek health care. Yes. Like for example, if you have, like, back pain, um, here's the thing. People can have all kinds of reasons for having back pain. You can have a kidney infection and have back pain. Um, so if you have back pain and all of that, like, you might want to actually go see a medical doctor. Yes. You might want to. Um, but they may not know or even understand that it's okay. Like they may sit there for six years before they actually go see the doctor. <laughs> or they may not even believe. Yeah. It's my personal journey with even being able to understand that it's okay to see a doctor or understanding that there are things wrong with me has been really strange and, um, yeah. How has it been really strange? I, so I'll just give one example. So I've had asthma my whole life. I remember as a child in the Mennonites, you know, here's an example of where I had care that other children didn't. So every couple of years I would get, have an asthma attack in the middle of the winter or, you know, some other time, which would lead to bronchitis, which would lead to pneumonia. And the pneumonia phase is where I would be seeing a doctor in the emergency room trying to get albuterol and steroids to make my lungs function even a little bit so I could breathe. Stop. Can, can I just ask a question? Yes. Why did you not have an inhaler to use before? Um, never mind. That's a good question. I'm sorry. But part of part of this was I had a nebulizer. I had like the emergency backup kind of medication for this. And it wasn't until two years ago. Mm -hmm. And two years ago, I've been out of the church for six years. So six years seems to be a running theme here. Um, <sighs> I realized that asthma is not a condition that can be controlled with your mind. And you need actual medication on a daily basis. And then you can actually breathe all the time. And you don't have to get bronchitis twice a year. Um, I'm so happy that you do realize that asthma is not a condition that can be controlled with your mind. That's, that's really... Can, can you explain that a little bit? Like the mind over matter thing that about healthcare? 
that to me has been the hardest part of coming to terms with how growing up plain has affected my mentality about my health and doctors in general is realizing that there was so much mind over matter. It just, it pervaded everything. You know, we were taught not to use the bathroom when our bodies told us to only wait until the specific time, you know, the teacher in school or the preacher in church was done. And, um, you know, you're taught to ignore your bodily urges. You're taught to ignore how you feel. If you get headaches, well, you should probably just suck it up because everyone gets headaches. Why would you want medication or to see a doctor? You know, that kind of thing. Right. And, um, yeah. And asthma was no different in my mind. It was just this thing that happened and then I just couldn't breathe sometimes. And if I just thought about it differently, it was probably going to go away or be different. And in hindsight, that's really not okay in the slightest. No, that's not yeah. okay. Hey. And there are, hi. Aww. You have a pen. Yeah. Are you, are you going to write us a letter? Um, but that's, that's really sad that it's like such a pervasive thing that, you know, mind over matter translates directly over into healthcare. And then it's like, so you've known this for how long, like six years yeah. that, that you don't have to get bronchitis and pneumonia twice a year. Yeah. And that it's really not a mind over matter thing. And that it's okay to have medical care for that condition yeah. that allows you to breathe without having all of those issues and struggling mm -hmm. to breathe and almost dying yeah. twice a year. Yep. I'm, I'm really, really happy and proud of you for Aww. having the strength to work through all of that and get to a place where you believe you deserve appropriate health care. Thank you, Mary. I'm really proud of myself too, that I'm actually, I'm making progress in this. Yeah, it's a journey. It's a oh big journey. So, when you say, um, you know, the the healthcare portion, obviously, we struggle with like seeking timely healthcare, right? Yes. Or even understanding that a condition is not, so, you know, like for example, diabetes, asthma, hypertension. Uh, with hypertension, I want to say that a lot of times like lifestyle and diet can really help you. Same with diabetes, like it can help you. But at the end of the day, if you need to have medical intervention, you deserve to have medical intervention and appropriate medical intervention. Yes. And you deserve the time and the money it takes to get you that right. medical intervention. That is correct. Um, I, I can share with people that I was diagnosed with hypertension when I was like in my mid twenties. Um, it is a family condition. Like it is. Yeah. But anyways, like it's, it's a thing of like, I also didn't believe that I necessarily deserved to have medical appropriate medical intervention for a couple of years. And I had to have that same battle. And I can really relate to that struggle with you. It's a big struggle. So did you, once you did all of that, like you talk about it being a journey as in like, do you still have to consciously choose to 
go seek health care when you just need maintenance or, you know, a refill on your medications or. Yeah. Unbelievably so sometimes. Um, I am just now like haven't even had my appointment yet. Am getting a primary care physician. I have not ever had one. Yeah. So I have an allergist and I have, which is an allergy asthma doctor. I saw, started seeing that doctor because of the asthma. Um, my partner has been a huge part of pushing me to do that. Wonderful. Yeah, it, it's really, it's not felt great all the time to have your partner <laughs> saying, oh my God, go to the doctor or this is a problem. But if your partner's saying that, then it's probably something pretty major happening. Um, well, it's challenging the belief system that you hold. And because it's challenging the belief system that you hold, it may not necessarily be comfortable. Yes, exactly. But at the, the bottom line is, is that you're a human being who has human rights and you deserve to have appropriate medical care. Yes, preci precisely. And everyone does. Right. Yeah. Everyone does. Yeah. So um, should we talk about some of the other interactions with doctors you've yes. had? Yes, let's. Sh where should we start? Psychologists? We could start with psychologists. Um, we should definitely talk a little bit about how hard it is to express the depth of things to doctors. Um, like just when you explain that you don't have a doctor and they don't understand that. So before we go there, all forms of medical intervention is forbidden question. I wouldn't necessarily say that all forms is, it's just very controlled, very, very controlled. And generally like that's either by like the head of the household or and or the church, the ministry will govern it in some cases. Um, mental health care is absolutely um, discouraged. Fine. Mental health care that is appropriate through appropriate and qualified counselors is discouraged. Yes. By many. However, you can speak to as many Amish bishops as you would like. They will help you forever. Don't worry. They pulled a paper from a book, and now they're qualified to be your counselor, according to the Amish. Uh, yeah. That's and how master's degrees work in the real world. That's a really good question, and now we can tie right into the psychologist. Yes. <laughs> That's perfect. Perfect. Should I share a screenshot of some of my experiences with psychologists? Yes. <laughs> uh, so these are actually going to be some screenshots of um, some of the some of the questions that you may see when you go see a psychologist and they do evaluations and testing and stuff like that. Um, sometimes you may they may ask you questions like this. So um, here's the thing is if you've been shunned and you're going to a psychologist for a diagnosis and the question is people are not very kind to me, 
Well, <laughs> if I say true, the psychologist can say I'm over-reporting. And if I say false, I'm lying, which goes against everything that was ingrained in me. So how am I supposed to answer that question? I'd really like to know the answer to that. Um, or, or even this one. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I hate my whole family. Um, hate is a strong word. Um, but my whole family shuns me for the most part. Maybe, you know, three people out of my entire family have over like, you know, uncountable number of relatives. I have over 5,000 cousins on when I did my DNA test, by the way. So yeah, three people out of them that actually I lied. There's four because I had one reach out to me over the last year. Um, but anyway, so so there's like a very limited amount of people that actually will even talk to me, let alone like, you know, all of that. So, you know, just having true or false and no other option is really just like, it's pretty terrible. What do you yeah. think about that when you say that, Ruthie? Ruth, sorry. That's okay. That's actually one of my nicknames. Um it's really hard coming to standardized questions like this in doctor's office and doctor's visits because questions like this reduce, I mean, massive portions of my life to having to decide whether I'm going to lie. And like, because I know that it doesn't translate um, and constantly having to look out for things like this. Um, and that kind of ties in with education, too, is so many of this these kinds of tests are set up based on people having a 12-year at least education and coming to it from an eighth grade perspective with having zero, um, like, English culture awareness mm -hmm. can be just so much because you constantly have to, I don't know. You have to try to understand it from that perspective, not your childhood perspective. So Is really that like a clear point? I I think that that's that's very true. Is like you have to under try to understand it from that perspective. But like even even when you get out of the culture and you have like an associate's degree or like you have some college and you have went back to college like even then it's still this huge deal of like okay because when you're exposed to things like there's certain inherent um, beliefs and conditioning that happens from the way that you're exposed to things as a child and so just yeah constantly having to look out for this and it doesn't just come from medical questionnaires or standardized mm -hmm. questioning um, it comes from conversations with the outside world there's a discrepancy in the way that we speak english having come from the amish and plain background versus yeah. the way that other people speak english there's a discrepancy in the types of things that are brain retains like I have songs that I can still sing the whole song to but can I um, remember certain portions of movies no I can't yeah I don't have the capabilities and I think it's partly 
partially because of that, because there's such a vast, there's such a vast um, gap between the two cultures. So like this, I'm so sick of what I have to do every day that I just want to get out of it all. Well, yes, and I did get out of it all, but now there's a whole other set of um, consequences that they blame me for. So in inside of like Amish and plain culture, if you leave, wouldn't you say that they kind of like blame you for it? Like you knew that if you leave, you're going to be shunned. And so you chose this. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And questions like this, I never quite know what to say. This is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All I can do is laugh. This is my yep. favorite. Y'all don't even know. Y'all don't even know. And here's the thing is I feel like I've been to psychologists, um, social workers, um, therapists, basically people in mental health professions, because yes, I was diagnosed with PTSD many years ago. I've had extensive therapy. I've had all kinds of therapy. Um, so that also means that with the amount of moving I did, that I saw a lot of different mental health providers. And I'm telling you, there are some mental health providers that literally, when I make true statements about my experience, they will literally it's, it's like they don't believe me. They think I'm over-reporting it. They do malingering tests on me. And it's like, y'all don't even know. You have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea the things that we have lived through. And the yeah. other thing is, is they look at me, I feel like some of them look at me like I'm an animal in the zoo. I'm not an animal in the zoo. I'm a human being and I have rights. And so do each and every single one of you. Yes. You're human beings who deserve to be treated better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever experienced anything like that? I have avoided doctors as much as possible. Um, however, I, I have multiple things. Like I have asthma. I also have a condition called endometriosis, um, which, yeah, I won't get into the specifics of it, but it is a chronic pain condition. Mm -hmm. And I had a medical incident in 2017, I want to say, where I had cysts that were growing and causing torsion in one of my ovaries. So basically, blood supply was getting cut off. I was in excruciating pain um, constantly. But every doctor that I saw could not see past the fact that when it comes to times when I'm in a lot of pain, I tend to just revert back to that childhood expression of it, of just stoic as possible, you know, because that's, that's the default setting. Um, and I've had so many doctors who, when I say I'm in pain, I'm in severe pain and I cannot function appropriately, hand me a bottle of Tylenol and say, you'll be fine. That's um, terrible. It is. It's really awful. Um, and I think this is part of the reason that we need to talk about this because 
we are having to learn as adults how to appropriately express what we feel. And that that is an important part of coming to terms with the medical field and how we interact with it very differently than, than a lot of people. Right. We didn't have that, like, well, were you ever encouraged to express your emotions as a Amish Mennonite? Oh my gosh, no. So how do you feel about this? My people treat me more like a child than a grown up. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> I was explaining to my partner the other day that it's like having left and having like no one from my childhood or teenage years, except maybe one person, one or two people that I still communicate with. When questions like this come up or the are you able to create lasting friendships? You know, how many friendships do you have that are 10 years old or older? And I know that, you know, the question is valid. Can you establish great relationships? But, <laughs> <laughs> but to me, it's like, well, no, I don't because I made it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, so when you have co coexisting PTSD and neurodivergence, um, so one thing that people need to understand is that like, you know, you, one, forming the lasting relationships, it's, it's triply difficult. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is I have had people that have stayed in my life for the last 17 years. Okay. I have, but I have had a lot of trouble with maintaining relationships and I feel like people come into my lives for a time and then they're just gone. Yeah. But anyways, going back to the PTSD, I hear strange things when I'm alone. When you have been stalked and people have attempted to break into your house, you're going to be a little bit hypervigilant when you hear a strange noise. Yes. It doesn't matter if it's as simple as like a click, a sound, a smell, whatever it is, you're gonna you're gonna hear it. Yeah. You're you're gonna hear it. So yep. I feel like that question is really unfair to even begin to like assess mental stability. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> You've never felt that way, right? We've never had people making us do things. Never. Ever. Or Ever. Like how explaining to a doctor or a psychologist how alienated you were raised and then like raised to think that you would always be. Like being raised as a female-bodied person, explaining to a mental health professional that you were literally... I don't know, brainwashed, mm -hmm. whatever term we want to use there to think that your opinion and your worth was just never going to be valid. And it was never going to be good enough. And you would have to do everything down to the T. And then no matter how hard you tried, because you're neurodivergent, 
you can never even begin to meet that. So like for you, Ruth, like you had like the neurodivergence, you had the all of those things combined. Yeah. It's terrible. This one's golden. This is my favorite one. Oh, oh. I can count on my family for help. You're talking to people. You know, people who literally, you're talking about people who literally, um, to this day, they tell me that or, um, the story still is, is that I'm very disobedient and unforgiving and, you know, all the other crap that goes along with it. Uh, even bitter, that's another word that's been used to describe me. And I'm just going to sit here and continue talking and speaking my truth because, you know what, if that makes me bitter and disobedient and unforgiving... Oh, well, because I can live with that. You know what I can't live with? I can't live with people who were never Amish telling my story. I can't live with people who were never plain trying to control the narrative around like what Amish abuse really is and how mm -hmm. to appropriately help, especially when they're giving terrible, awful information. Yeah. So... No, I can't count on my family for help. Never have been able to. Can you count on your family for help? I am lucky that my immediate family, my parents, also ended up leaving. And I can go to them for things now. But it wasn't always that way. So I'm so glad you're in that space now. Me too. Me too. Um, That's wonderful. I, yeah. It's been so much work to get to where we are now, but so yeah. much work. And we're not done. Sometimes but it's a journey. Yeah. Destination unknown. And it's okay. Exactly. It's okay. But nobody has it in for me. I'm going to let everybody know. Nobody has it in for me ever. Okay. Nobody I'm, ever. I'm, I'm, I'm just letting everybody know that. Because, yeah, and I lost my place because I'm great like that. For no good reason. <laughs> Nobody has it in for me, ever. I, I'm not sure if you know this, Ruth, but I legally changed my name. And went into hiding because of how badly I was harassed after I left the community and reported the abuse. Oh my God! I but did nobody not has that. it in for me. If I tell nobody, people, I'm, nobody, I'm I'm just letting y'all know. Plain people would never do that, <laughs> or that, right? No, they're kind and nice. Oh. <laughs> they're the peaceful, gentle people, and they're so forgiving, and they would never talk bad about you. No. They're just praying for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyways, <laughs> we know all about anxiety. I have no enemies who really wish to harm me. Let me tell you something. I really don't. 
<laughs> oh my god. So I I guess like how do we explain like on a more serious note, even though hashtag humor is a coping skill, uh, how do we explain to people that this type of standardized questioning is one not going to be accurate on explain people because we don't have one the education or even uh, the language to begin to go there like a lot of times psychologists will gauge um, whether somebody is is stable by the fact are they able to do um, activities of daily living such as like showering daily etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but there's there's like this whole thing where explain people they can be showering daily and really battling against like I'm not gonna drive my car off a bridge today. Yeah. So how do we explain that to people in a way that they can receive that? Yeah. Because the the gap is so big. Yeah. And it's such a broad thing. It's not like <clears throat> it's not like there's one specific way that our upbringing changed us and altered the way that we communicate. It affects so many aspects of how we interact, especially with people in positions of authority or doctors and psychologists in particular. Yeah. And, and even men versus women and oh, how yes. we interact with them. Because yeah. if you were assigned female at birth, as an, as an Amish or um, Mennonite, um, Anabaptist, whatever, um, you you were expected to own the headship principles. And yes. so it, it's like when those when people are placed in that position of authority, you have to, you have to battle everything within you to stick to your guns, to say, no, this is not the way it is. And then, what do you do when somebody claims you're over-reporting your situation? Aww. Yeah, that's such a tough one because how do you explain that? I don't know, because all of these things are just such huge parts of of how we formed our interactions with people. Hi. Hey. You're gonna she wants to say hi. They want to say hi. That's okay. Um, it does. It really shapes your interactions with people. And then I, I don't know if people understand what I mean when I say over-reporting. Over-reporting means you're, you're saying that it's worse than it really is, kind of like you're exaggerating. Um, all I got to say to those people who want to write reports about me and say that is that you didn't live my life. And until you've lived my life and lived through the horror that I've lived through, you don't get to tell me I'm over-reporting. You don't get to tell me I'm over-reporting my symptoms. You don't get to tell me I'm over-reporting um, the things that I still struggle with because you don't see and you don't know. All you see is the snapshot yeah. from your brief interaction with me. And that goes for anybody that <coughs> you don't know. 
You have no idea the amount of pressure that an ex-plane person can be under and the amount of mental, mental turmoil they can be under and still function in your eyes as what would be considered a, a reasonably normal function and healthy function for that matter. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. do you think, what do you think was the, the single most impactful um, medical interaction you've ever had? Either psychologist, medical, I don't care. Like, what's, what's the single most impactful one? Strangely, it's not about myself. Um, I recently got a job in a doctor's office. Um, and it was just, it was a patient bringing in their child who was, you know, not even 10. And, you know, I could see in the chart that they'd been bringing this child in since they were like two. And it was just that seeing in just plain written fact that depriving a child of access to medical care for a condition they were born with is not normal. Other parent, like, and it was for me just seeing that, that continuity of care is important. Yes. And it's not as foreign to other folks as it is to me. Wow. Yeah. Continuity of care is a big one. That's a really big one. Yeah. Because yeah. like with that, with that whole mentality you were talking about earlier, and we're at about five minutes until we um, stop this bashing of... <laughs> Look, y'all, I try to be nice, but people just get on my, like, side of, like, yeah. Anyways, um, it, you were, you were kind of talking about that whole mentality of where you're, you don't, you didn't know or, or even understand that you can have asthma medication and management and that will allow you to live life and be able to breathe and not have bronchitis and pneumonia twice a year. So having that mentality, but then like seeing it from the other side where it's like a child has a medical condition, but like that child is allowed to, and not even just allowed to, but they're, the parents are doing their job and taking yeah. their child to the doctor for appropriate medical care. Yeah. That's a big statement. It really is. And, it, you know, and I look back at my childhood and it wasn't just me. It was my siblings. It was every kid in that church. Every single person that I grew up with never had access to that. Um, so and, sad. Yeah. And there's so many Amish and plain children who just never, ever know what doctors and you know, healthcare is meant to be. Just, they have no idea. That's really, really sad. Yeah. So if, like, you could reach any of those people today that are in Amish and Mennonite churches and Anabaptist churches, what would you say to them? Oh, 
I would write a book, but there are just, there are people out here who can and will help you take care of yourself. Yeah. And help there you are learn people. to do that. There are also people who will not only just help, can and will help you to take care of yourself, but they will also help you find the appropriate people that will help you take care of yourself. Yes. And I just want to add that for me, I would tell them too, you deserve to have appropriate medical care. And what I mean by that is if you have diabetes, you deserve to have appropriate medication and diet interventions. Yes. <clears throat> if you have like asthma, you deserve to have appropriate medication and management of that asthma. Yeah. And if that means you have to go see the doctor every four months, that's what you have to do. And you deserve to have that. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a splurge. That's like you putting, bringing food into the house kind of level of necessity, you know? Yeah. It's not an option. And sometimes it actually ends up with um, these children dying. Um, sadly, that is, yeah. Yep. But anyways, on that note, y'all deserve health care. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you for sharing all of this. I'm going to go, you know, make more coffee so I can function today. I appreciate y'all's support. Have a beautiful and wonderful day.